we, we seem to really value convenience over human connection as a society. And what I mean by that is, is that take out the current period, but we can, we can use the self-service at the supermarket. We don't need to talk to a human being. We don't need to go through the checkout. We can go to the bank and we don't need to talk to a person. We can order our food online. We don't even need to go shopping. So if we need to go to the supermarket, we can skip the coffee line. You and I can order a coffee. And we can say, well, we're there in 20 minutes to pick it up. We walk in with our headphones. We take the coffee. We haven't talked to one person, right? We, on that particular day, we could be working from home and we could then use Uber Eats to order our dinner. Like, we haven't spoken to a person the whole day, like, but we've managed to function through our whole day. So I think when you break it down for people, and that's the way I kind of explain it to people, is that really that needs to be challenged because when you think about that, none of those things individually are wrong. Like anyone that does those things, it's fine. And I do some of them as well. That's absolutely fine. But I think when you add them all up and it's consistent, I think that that's when we have a big problem go and do what you want to do and but know that it's not going to be easy you know especially if you're going down a, a road that's that's kind of uh you're making your own path and uh that was something that you know I, del I was delayed on just because there was no representation but now i feel there's there is representation and i'm hoping that helps um you know women and, and girls go right into what they want to do don't don't get your your dreams deferred you know just because you know you didn't think you could do it so now i feel it's a, it's a great opportunity and a great great day to be alive for, for women and girls to try to do what they want to do without thinking they can't do something because there's no one that looks like them doing it. Um, you know, it's okay to be the first sometimes and, um, you know, just really strive for greatness. You know, that, that's really my goal. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. I am a speaker and lead trainer with the Pinot Training Group, where we work with teams and organizations looking to create powerful, positive, peak performance team cultures. This podcast is a show that was inspired by my 2016 TEDx talk called the 50 Cups of Coffee Challenge. Go check that out on YouTube if you haven't already. In the talk, I challenge you to sit down for a conversation with 50 people in a year. That number might sound big until you fully appreciate this is not all about networking. It is about simply connecting with people. To keep my personal 50 Cups of Coffee challenge alive during this time of social distancing, I have added time slots on my Calendly page for a cup of coffee with Bobby. I did confirm that if you search calendly.com forward slash Bobby Audley 01 and then click on the cup of coffee with Bobby link, it will take you to the right place to schedule that. This week, I had my first cup of coffee with Bobby Chat, and it was with an old friend I used to work with when I worked on a ropes challenge course for a team building company. We had a phenomenal chat because she is also a podcast host. Sarah McInerney is the host of Facing Fear with Sarah, a show that features individuals who approach fear in the pursuit of living unapologetically authentic lives and defining success on their own terms. The show seeks to bring you raw storytelling and realistic tools to help conquer fear and surpass your goals. Go check out Facing Fear with Sarah wherever you listen to podcasts. It looks like she is on all of them, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. This is not an ad, just looking to support a friend and share with you a great podcast. If you would like to hop on a cup of coffee with Bobby, check out that link and we can set it up. 
This is also the place to sign up for your one-hour free athlete at home coaching and accountability session. If you're an athlete stuck at home right now or a parent or coach of an athlete, during this time of quarantine and canceled seasons, I am offering my one-on-one peak performance coaching program specifically designed for athletes. The objective of the program is to create and maintain a powerful, positive peak performance daily routine to stay on track with your 2020 athletic goals while in the state of quarantine. With seasons canceled and school either online or suspended, this coaching program done using Zoom is an opportunity for your student athlete to develop and enhance the gains they made this year and ensure he or she doesn't lose those gains. Instead, they build themselves up and prepare daily for when their sport or training starts back up. They hone their edge. The first session is a no-cost conversation of defining your goals, acknowledging your challenges or roadblocks, and creating a daily routine to set yourself up for success this spring. If that is all your athlete needs, awesome. If after session one, you or your athlete is interested in the full program, awesome. Sincerely, either decision is fine with me any way that we can help. To schedule a session or simply learn more, check out that Calendly link, calendly.com, that's C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y.com forward slash Bobby Audley and then the numbers zero one. Or shoot me a message on social at Bobby Audley or head on over to panotraininggroup.com, P-E-N-N-E-A-U traininggroup.com. Click on contact and fill out the form. In the comments portion of the form, simply write Athlete Coaching Program. Last week's Coffee Shop shout-out was for Ceremony Coffee here in Maryland, where I live. This week, we are headed to Ryan's home state of Michigan. Ryan Pinot is the Pinot of the Pinot Training Group, and the last few times I have been in Michigan to visit him, we have stopped by the Brighton Coffee House and Theater for a cup of coffee and some really good food. On their website, they say, our name says it. The Brighton Coffee House and Theater. The, just one and not a chain, its owner operated and loved. Brighton, it's our home and where we shop and raise our kids. Coffee House, a home for all things coffee, tea, conversation, snacks, bakery, lunch. Theater, a place for real life dramatic arts, cinema, music, and crafts. They actually have a stage in the coffee house for theater, music, cinema, and arts productions. It's a super cool, one-of-a-kind place. And they roast great coffee that you can purchase online to support them during this time. On their site, it says, we have a passion for coffee. Not just any coffee, but rare and unusual coffees from small farms that take great care in cultivating and milling high-quality coffees that earn top scores. In turn, the farmers earn top dollar for their work and ensure that the crops are eco-friendly and sustainable. In my opinion, it really is good coffee. To grab a bag for yourself, head on over to brightoncoffeehouse.com. That's B-R-I-G-H-T-O-N coffeehouse.com and click on shop the store. I know finances are tight for all of us right now, but for me, a great cup of coffee is a big energy filler. And not just because of the caffeine. I love coffee and buying bags online from roasters I love is my small way of helping out those small businesses during this time. Again, this is not an ad, just a shout out to give you some ideas of great coffee to buy right now. Today's episode is a double feature. I am sharing with you two interviews in one episode. I'm doing this for two reasons. First off, this week I recorded two interviews and want to share these Zoom interviews right away. Second, 
after this week, I am going to take a little mid-season break from podcasting. As soon as COVID-19 caused everything to kind of shut down, I felt the need to put some current and topical interviews out there. I have loved doing so, and I'm going to be honest, I'm a bit zoomed out. I am grateful that Zoom and other video chat platforms have allowed me to make this podcast topical and keep it current, and to be candid with you, I need a break from it. I'm sure like you, my day is now spent video chatting. For me, it's with teams, athletes, other clients during the week, and then friends and family on weekends for FaceTime game nights or simply just saying hi, and it's great. I love it. And I need to pump the brakes on it for my own mental state. I do have a number of pre-recorded interviews in the tank that I'll be dropping for the rest of season one. These guests include the sport development director at World Lacrosse, the 2019 National Strength Coach of the Year, who has helped train 12 national championship teams and eight individual national championships, one of the youngest college athletic directors in the country, a pro soccer academy director, the former assistant director of the Steph Curry Skills Academy, and many, many more. To get these out to you, I'm going to take a bit of a break, recharge, refocus, and come back with a slate of world-class guests. To be alerted when the next new episode drops, subscribe wherever you are listening. And if you haven't already, please leave us a rating and review. Those are so helpful, and we appreciate it more than you know. During this break, I am also going to up my online presence with the podcast to get the website up and offer other features. So keep an eye out for that as well. Now let's get on to this week's episode. My first guest today is Chris Hope, the founder of the 100 Coffee Movement. And my second guest is Jennifer King, assistant coach with the Washington Redskins and one of only a handful of female coaches in the NFL. We're going to start today with Chris. In 2016, Chris Hope set a goal of sitting down with 100 strangers in 100 weeks for 100 cups of coffee over two years. Chris met with 100 new people for coffee and recently gave a TEDx talk he called What 100 Coffees Taught Me About Human Connection. Chris reached out to me via LinkedIn right before he gave his talk as he came across my 50 Cups of Coffee Challenge online as well. Since then, he has started the 100 Coffee Movement to help people, organizations, and communities build healthy connections to tackle the problems of loneliness and social isolation. Chris is based out of Melbourne, Australia, my first international guest, and so I was planning on interviewing him via Zoom from the start, and this time of social distancing made it an ideal time to have this chat. In this interview, Chris talks about how his team is doing their part during this COVID-19 crisis. And for me, it was almost comforting to chat with a guy halfway across the globe, experiencing the exact same thing we are here in America. We are truly all in this together. And it goes without saying, Chris and I have a lot in common, the least of which is the fact that he doubled the 50 cups of coffee challenge and did 100 in two years. After Chris, I chat with Jennifer King. Jennifer has played 11 seasons in the Women's Football Alliance and is a seven-time All-American in that league. Yes, she is a female professional football player. In 2013, Jennifer King led her team to an undefeated season and won the Independent Women's Football League Championship. In addition to being a professional football player herself, 
Jennifer was a college basketball coach for over 10 years before joining the staff of Coach Ron Rivera of the Carolina Panthers in the NFL. After working with Coach Rivera for one year, Jennifer joined the Dartmouth College football staff as the offensive assistant where she won the 2019 Ivy League Championship. And today, Jennifer is back with Coach Rivera as a coaching intern with the Washington Redskins. To many, Coach Jennifer King is a pioneer for women in professional football as the first full-season African-American female coach in the NFL. Please enjoy my cups of coffee, first with Chris Hope and second with Coach Jennifer King. Yeah, so I guess if I take you back to um, late 2016, I was working in a role that probably didn't align my values. I was in a relationship that, again, didn't align with my values. And I was going through quite a difficult time in my life. And I sat down with my best friend. I was lucky to live with my best friend at the time. Um, He now lives in Hong Kong. And we were talking about setting some goals. And one of those goals that we set was to meet 100 new people. And the reason I set that goal is because I've always really valued human connection. And the power of human connection. So I've always been that person that knows everyone's name at the supermarket, the kid in class that talked to everybody. And I felt that in that time in 2016, I really lost that. So I embarked on this journey, I guess you could call it, of having a cup of coffee every week with somebody new. And I guess at the start, I didn't realize the power and the potential um, of this, both from a personal perspective and also to impact others. And the learning that I did was like, extraordinary like I it really changed my life in so many ways I learned a lot about values about the power of human connection and then towards the end of the talk I did some work with Australia's uh, NGO on mental health beyond blue around the um, wellness benefits of meeting new people and then that was then picked up by Ted and I was asked to speak at the TEDx conference that I spoke at and really my talk was about spreading this message and really challenging the way that we view human connection. I think it's quite ironic that we're doing this on Zoom, this podcast, because it would have been great to do it face-to-face. I know. We were just talking before. But I think that at this time during uh, COVID-19, like what I talked about at TED is even more exasperated now. And I think that um, that human connection is so important and specifically face-to-face human connection um, is so important. Uh, when we're allowed to do it, of course, for health reasons. And when you were doing it, so it was 100, 100 coffees in 100 days or 100 weeks, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, so about two, a two-year journey. And what were, what were you doing at that time? So it was 2016. Did you have a job? Did you just kind of backpack around and have these coffees? Like, how did you set this up and make it happen? I asked because when you and I first connected, I think I told you, I challenge people to do 50 coffees in a year and I usually get uh, uh, people saying, well, you don't really do 50, do you? And, and, and kind of uh, push back on the number. And so uh, I think even just hearing logistically how you did this would be helpful. Yeah. So I was working full time and then in 2017, I actually started an MBA as well. So I went to part-time work and full-time, but I think, during my MBA, I went and exchanged to the UK and I also did an internship um, in the Philippines. And even still, I managed to continue the coffee. So I think organizing one a week wasn't that difficult. It was more about the reaching out to people. 
and then having a really organized diary as well that um, they kept the coffees kind of, you know, three or four weeks ahead, <clears throat> I guess. But I think for me, I really just wanted to finish the project. Like I started something and I wanted to finish it and I wanted to see it through. I think that once you start to piece the coffees together and one of the most powerful things you talk about logistics was not necessarily the coffee itself. Every Sunday I would go and write about the coffee. So I'd write about what did I learn from that person? What was I grateful for? And how could I apply that to my own life? And that when done for a hundred weeks is really powerful on me. So that was probably the logistical part of it that was, um, yeah, that was definitely kept to in terms of it. It was every Sunday, but yeah, I just, honestly, I would try and organize coffees in advance. I would say like, you know, Bobby, like, can you be coffee number 77? I'm doing this project and you know, can we meet in four weeks? And it was kind of just keeping it ahead of, of, of where it was. Yeah. And what were the three things you said you, you journaled about every time afterward? What did I learn from the coffee? Uh, what was I grateful for? And how could I apply that to my own life? How could you apply it? Yeah. Do you have, um, do you have moments that stand out to you, uh, conversations that stand out to you, uh, <laughs> things you learned from and grateful for and took from afterward? Yeah, and yeah, definitely. I think that um, coffee number four, uh, or Steph is her name, was the, was the most yeah, life-changing conversation really for me. It was uh, really relevant at the time. And she asked me, how do my personal values align with my career? And that was such that was a powerful- coffee number four? That was coffee number four, yeah. I heard you talk about that. I didn't realize that was coffee number four. What a way to coffee kick number it off. Yeah, so the first three were like, yeah, they were just coffees. Like, it was good, but- nothing happened and then this happened number four and I was kind of like wow this is this project is yeah this could be really like life-changing what was your answer at that time so the question is how do your I think I wrote it down how do your personal values align with your career and what you choose to do with your life what was your answer at that time well I didn't know the answer that was that was why it was so challenging for me also because when she asked me that question she said you know you you may not be able to answer this now but what and I kind of went home and on the left-hand side of a page, I wrote down what my values were and the words that resonated with me, what was, what was important to me. And on the right-hand side of the page, I wrote down the things that I was doing in my life because I didn't just apply Steph's question to my career. I applied it across all of the things that I was doing. And there weren't too many ticks. It was kind of like, it does this align my value? Well, not really. Like, and so that gave me a roadmap for how I could really bring my life back into things that align with my values and really, understand myself better so that from that perspective it was a very powerful exercise and yeah I mean I talk still talk to Steph and now and yeah I think that it's really interesting like the, that that question had such an impact because of the timing as well mm-hmm. uh, and then values seemed to come up quite a lot throughout the coffees conversations it was a lot of people talked about values and they talked about alignment of values or not having alignment with their values how did you get to that type of conversation so what are you you know, part of this podcast, the idea came about for me because I was getting questions from people saying, what do you talk about with individuals and sit down with them? And, and so I, I, my idea was just to record my conversations because, you know, this is a conversation, quite frankly, you and I would have anyways at, at this time. <laughs> and so, um, so what, are, what were some of the things you talked about in, in those coffees? Yeah, I think I didn't have a framework. Um, and the reason for that is what exactly you just said there. I think that even though we've met before, I think that we would still have this conversation anyway. And I think that 
conversations tend to flow quite naturally. One of the biggest things that I didn't want to do with this project was make it a networking project. It was really important to me that this was really about genuinely connecting with other human beings and understanding their story and how that could be applied to my own, right? And wherever the conversation went, that was fine. So some people shared with me about their relationship. Uh, it's amazing what people will share with strangers. Hmm. Some of the conversations were about work. Some of them were about sport. Some of them were about what was happening in the world at the time. And then towards the end, many of the, co- many of the conversations were about the 100 coffees. What did you learn from the 100 coffees? And then they would reflect on that learning. So that was quite interesting how it kind of flipped around when you got to around number 90. Um, and I remember those, some of those coffees quite well. Um, but in terms of having a framework, I think I, I didn't do that because often there's a lot of advice and I was just in an MBA program. And, you know, a lot of the advice when we talk about networking is you need to go there and you need to get something out of that person. So I'm going to meet Bobby, like, what am I going to get out of him today? Like, what's my, you know, what's my ask? And I think that if you flip that around and say, well, what can I give Bobby? Like, what's my give to somebody else and give first and really have that mentality? I think that, and, it, and that may be a story that may be, that doesn't have to be something like tangible. That can be, you know, that can be a story or whatever it is. I think that when you flip that round and approach people in that manner, I think that you make much better connections and you actually get more back anyway, right? Like, so it tends to work in a way that the hundred coffees, those people have helped me so much with my career professionally. Some of them I talk to quite regularly mm. um, and they're you know, happy to help me out. So I think when you go into it without a framework and you go into it with, I'm just going to meet these people and really try and understand their story. And I think one thing the project really helped me with is asking better questions of people. Um, because I'm very extroverted and sometimes I can really like dominate a conversation and a really good self-reflection for me was I need to ask better questions and yeah, allow people to really, you know, articulate their own story as well. So, yeah. Yeah, One of the lines I love from your uh, TEDx talk is everyone has a story and anyone can teach you something if you listen long enough. And really the, the nuance of listen long enough was really cool because when you go into these conversations, uh, in many ways, people do love to talk about themselves. And they love to talk about themselves if you are genuinely interested, if you are seeking to get something out of them, if you're asking really super intentional questions for a networking or a business reason or a sales reason, people don't wanna talk and they do kind of shut down. But if you can create an environment where you're just genuinely interested in other people, then you do get them talking and talking and talking. And what's interesting is what I've found is the more you talk to more people and listen, it also makes you more interesting to be able to talk to others. It's kind of a, a, a snowball effect where you know my wife will sometimes laugh and you know, I'll, I'll get into a really deep conversation with someone at just like a, a party or a get together where we don't really know anybody. And I'll end up talking to somebody about their job and say it's like graphic design and I technically don't know much about it, but I know enough about it to have a really good conversation with this person. And she'll laugh and say, how is it that you're able to have these conversations with people? And I always say, it's because I have conversations with people. It's because when I'm talking to you know, Brian about graphic design, I can relate it to talking about Kim about the same job two, three months ago. And, and so it's kind of a, it just, it, the more you do it, the easier it becomes and the more fun it becomes because you can make those connections. And that's really all people want, right? You don't have to be an expert in what they do, but as long as you can continue to learn and grow and listen, it makes all of this stuff easier and more enjoyable. I really like that. I think that's really, I think that's a really good summary. I think curiosity is probably the word. 
as mm-hmm. well. I think being genuinely curious about people. And yeah, I think that that's, it's so, so interesting. You're absolutely right. Like I know some things about industries that I never thought that I would have, would have learned. And not to say that I know anything about the industry. I don't know anything about the industry, but if someone came to me and had, like you said, had that job, then I will be able to say, oh, like I met so-and-so in the 100 Coffees Project or another time and I kind of understand a little bit about what you're saying. Like I've heard about this and people are really surprised. Um, they're like, oh, how did you hear about that? Like, yeah. Yeah. You still, like, have you done the 100 Coffees again? Do you have, a, 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 I guess, a routine that keeps you connecting with people in this type of way? Or where is it, where is it now for you personally? Yeah, I mean, I, I still really value the coffees and probably it would be more than one a week now, I would say. Uh, obviously not at the moment, but <laughs> um, when we can do coffees face-to-face, it's more than one a week. Uh, and that's from a multitude of reasons. That's with, um, yeah, really valuing that, that connection um, with people still and, and the learning that you can have. And also, yeah, I think that the 100 was kind of a drop in the ocean, really. You think about, you know, this four and a half million people in Melbourne. So right. you know, not that I meet all of them, but you know, the, you can continue to meet people and the, there's always opportunities to learn from others. Um, and what's been really nice is the reception to the project has been really great. And I'm sure that you found that yourself with your 50 cups of coffee project is that people are really interested in what you did. And then obviously you also did a TEDx talk and it's great to be able to share the story and inspire others. And I think that's why we both did that talk. And I think that, people are interested to talk to me also about the project. And that, that's always really nice as well when people reach out and say, I'd love to hear about the 100 coffees. And I kind of think, oh, this is a great, like, this is another great person. I can hear their story. They, you know, they understand the concept. So the conversation will go really well usually because they kind of go into it with some you know, questions or, or kind of um, an idea around that we're just genuinely connecting and there's no, yeah, there's no edge to the, to the conversation. Yeah, I just started. So Shane Yeager, who was another guest on this podcast, gave me the idea to set up a Calendly account and and have pe- give people the ability to just sign up for a cup of coffee and and just just to connect. And I didn't do it when he first gave me the idea because you know I tr- I just I didn't logistically know how I would really make it happen with my travel because I'm all over the place. And then when yeah. this happened, I thought, you know what, I'm home on Zoom and on the phone all day anyway, so let's do it. And it's been cool. I launched it this week, and I think I already have four folks who've signed up, and um, three of them are old friends who I haven't connected with in a while, and one of them is just someone who's been following, you know, the, the work. And so that's been pretty cool, and it's like it's, awesome. a, it's a cool way to get it going. Um, so after, after, the, after the TEDx talk, you launched this 100 Coffee movement. You partnered with a, is it a guy named Simon, correct? Is that who yeah. you work with? Tell us about that. What are you, what's your mission and what are you guys doing? Yeah, so towards the end of the project, I met Simon at a social impact meetup called Melbourne Soup here. And yeah, I was really impressed with Simon. We got on really well. One of those people that you meet, similar to you and I, we just have really good conversations, kind of like, yeah, I'd really like to work with this guy. And we were talking a lot about, Simon was talking about his passion for tackling loneliness. And I thought, that's really interesting because that's exactly what I'm thinking about with social isolation and human connection. And so we took a few months to kind of keep meeting up and articulating our thoughts. And we decided that we wanted to do something bigger than just this project. I think for me, when I got to the end of this project, it was kind of like, I can write a book or I can do things that are quite individual. 
And maybe those things will still happen and there's nothing wrong with those things because they can still impact other people and I do speak on this project, etc. But for me, it was about giving this project up and kind of saying, I really want to turn it into something, something else that impacts more people and use the story as kind of the brand behind that. So, yeah, Simon has a Masters of Applied Positive Psychology and we're working with another guy, Ben Skeepers. And, yeah, the three of us, we're running workshops and programs now around human connection and why human connection is important and building individuals' capacities to connect. So last year we ran some events, uh, which went really well. We tested some of our activities and methodology. And then now we're, we've got some workshops booked in with some universities and yeah, some really exciting pieces of work coming up where we're helping individuals build their own capacity to have better human connection. And I think that now that we've gone, everything's online at the moment, I think post COVID-19, I think it will be a really interesting time for us because I think that there'll be a real push back towards that face-to-face connection and how do we build our capacity to connect with others. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're really lucky that people value that and that they want to work with us and that they buy into the story. And yeah, so that's kind of where we're at at the moment, mate, with what we're doing. Can you, can you maybe it's a, kind of walk us through uh, the sales pitch or just to help us understand what exactly you guys do. Uh, let's say, like you said, a university wants <coughs> to contract you to help them with connections. What exactly are you doing for them? Yeah, so we'd work with a specific group of students. Like, for example, we have a workshop coming up in a couple of weeks where we're working with 25 international students, right? And so, obviously, they're a group who can often be at risk of not having strong connections within Melbourne, and that's a group that we really want to work with. So we use a lot of the skills that are from applied positive psychology, like gratefulness, building resilience, how do you build um, connection skills, emotional intelligence, and really using the 100 Coffees project as kind of the overlay for all of those things and some of the lessons that I learned from that project. So really around like values alignment, but specifically on, on those kind of practical skills, like how do you build your resilience? How do you have good conversations with others? What are some of the practical implications of conversations? Like you talked about logistics, and that's really important as well to think about those types of things. Like even we've done a little bit of work around like crafting LinkedIn messages, for example, like how do you reach out to somebody on LinkedIn to get a coffee with them? Like that's something that not everyone knows how to do or is comfortable doing. So yeah, I think you're really, sorry, Chris, cause I want to jump in on that. I think you're really good at that specifically uh, is LinkedIn. And so do you have, what do you teach when it comes to that? How does someone, if someone's listening right now and they want to pull that nugget away, how do you teach someone to uh, reach out on LinkedIn? I think again, it goes back to what we were both saying before. I think it's about, being genuinely curious, finding something in their profile that you're interested in, and then really saying, I'd love to hear about, for example, with you and I, it would be quite easy, right? You could say, Bobby, I've seen your TED Talk. I'd love to learn more about the 50 cups of coffee. And you'd be like, oh, this person's interested in my story. I'd love to give them some advice, or I'd love to tell them my story, because everyone likes to talk about their story, right? And everyone likes to um, talk to other people and to give advice to them. So. I think if you can choose something that's specific in their profile and you can say, I'd love to talk to you about this project or this piece of work that you did, or that looked really interesting when you worked in New York or whatever it is, I'd love to hear about that. I think most people will be happy to have a coffee with you. Mm-hmm. I think the hurdle is, will they reply? And then of course in the hundred cups of coffee, I'm not sure how it went for you, but with me, there were lots of people that didn't reply and there were lots of people that said no, and that's fine. Like some people are busy, some people don't want to meet. That's okay, but there's plenty of people that do. And I think that 
the plenty of people that do always outweighs the the ones that don't. So I would encourage people really to to approach it with a mindset of if people if you get rejected or people say no, that's fine, that's okay. People can be busy, they have other things going on, that's totally okay. But really approach that message with a genuine curiosity. Like I would never ask anyone to talk about like a job, for example, because people can be often turned off by that immediately. Even if you're trying to find a job, I think there's ways around that and really to learn about the industry first and about the company first and really about the individuals that work there as opposed to going at it from the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's kind of the concept of an informational interview. You're, you're going in simply to learn and, and to be informed. And the reality of it is um, so few people do it. Yeah. And, and, and so it really does set you apart. And again, I love how you always say it's not about networking. It's not necessarily about setting yourself apart, but it's, it's understanding that it is going to because so few people do it. When my wife, my wife was a, a teacher and wanted to get into counseling, child counseling, which she's studying now and going to graduate in May. So she kind of started doing informational interviewing at the time to learn about counseling, just reaching out to people and say, can I sit down and learn about your job? Not only did she learn about exactly what she wants to do, but also you make so many connections within the industry and people are always surprised by that. How do you know so-and-so and so-and-so? And it's, I simply reached out and said, can we come in and chat? And it, it almost... If, you, if, if, if someone listens to every episode of this podcast and has watched both of our TED Talks, it's probably going to sound like a broken record at this point, but we're not trying to overcomplicate it. So many people do not reach out that you're 100% right. I remember I was trying to think before we hopped on this, you know, how did you and I first connect? And that is how we first connected from what I remember is you reached out via LinkedIn and said... I've watched your talk and I'm doing, I think you had yet to do your talk. You're about to do, right? And, 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 and you were looking, and I, I, I get a lot of messages on LinkedIn and, and a lot of them, most of them are people looking to sell something or offer yep. something or whatever. <laughs> and I remember being excited when you messaged, because I was like, how cool is this? Uh, of, of, you know, the 100 co Coffee Movement TED Talk. So uh, you're absolutely right. When you're just curious and you're seeking to connect, seeking to learn, it's amazing. My experience has always been the same with 50 Cups of Coffee. I've never had anyone outright just turn me down. I've never had anyone say no. I've had people not respond. But even that is pretty rare um it's been amazing to me even at the highest level of, of busy and quite frankly what i've said over and over and over again on this podcast is that the people that are the busiest are in my experience the ones that respond the most often and the quickest and i just find that unbelievable and my belief behind it is that's why they're so busy like that's sure. why they're successful not that busy equals success but these are individuals who are you know i think of Division one college coaches. I think of corporate executives that I've interviewed on the podcast. I think of, of uh, authors, you name it. And, and they, they all respond. And if I were to text them now, they respond. And that's not because I'm, I have such a close relationship with them. I don't. It's because that's the type of person they are. And that's been, for me, liberating to learn. Because then it encourages, it encourages you to reach out to more people. It's almost permission to reach out to more people. It is. Right? It is. Yeah. So, so I, I hundred percent have always been on board with that. Um, you make a point in your talk and then also on, on 
with your movement now and about face-to-face is so important. And we can certainly talk about, I want to get to at the end of the podcast, what you guys are doing right now to serve those during this time of social distancing. And my, you know, we're going to get out of this and we're going to get back to -to face-to-face. So for, for you, why is face-to-face so important? Why has that been something you've prioritized? Yeah, I think that face-to-face is so important. Well, because historically it's very important to us. I mean, science tells us that we're social beings and we require face-to-face connection to, to thrive. So I think that the science supports that as well. For me personally, it's, it's really about those. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot said around things like physical touch, even shaking hands, all of those things and how that builds connection with people. I think that the power of face-to-face connection really is also around like things that are happening around you. So for example, we could be in a coffee shop and there's kind of other people there and you're kind of having like observational conversations as well around like the weather, this might start raining or whatever it is. Right. And so you miss out all of those things at the moment, right. In the zoom call. I think that one of the other things that we're really missing at the moment is those insignificant connections. And we were talking earlier about this. And I think that so many people have met their partner, their best friend, their business partner, whoever it is, right. Or someone important in their life, or maybe they're not important in their life and they had a really good experience with them. Um, and they met them through like an insignificant connection. They were walking past the coffee shop. There was somebody there. They said, Oh, hello. How are you? Next minute. Oh, I'm good. How are you? And then we're talking and then we become best friends. And those insignificant connections at the moment, we're missing those because none of our, um, none of our connections are face to face and we can't have those insignificant connections. So for me, the power of face to face connection will always, um, always be more than this digital connection right now. Obviously we have to have digital connection. It's unsafe for us not to, and that's okay. And there are times where digital connection is appropriate. Some of my best friends live overseas. It's very important to stay connected. We connect digitally. Okay. But I think that nothing can ever beat when you see that person face to face and it's a, it's the whole range of, um, of emotions. This feels like a more sanitized environment for connection, in my opinion. Like it's still obviously at the moment, it's, it's all we've got, but I would use the word more sanitized. I think that this is, this is not as authentic and yeah, I think it's harder to build those really deep connections with people. I would agree. I think for me, the, you know, podcasts have been a fascinating little anecdotal experiment for me to be able to say even these conversations aren't and I'm not I'm not judging the conversations I've put out in the last three weeks or this one and I'm here to say they're not as organic they're not as um, just free-flowing they're shorter I mean on average I record for two hours when I sit down with somebody and have been publishing probably about an hour 20 hour and a half of podcast because I cut out a lot of the just just talking that we get into and in person we always get into a lot of talking and tangents and side conversations which from a place of building connections is huge and 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 you know maybe it's not as informative for the podcast but it's huge for building connection and it's huge for finding something interesting to talk about i can't tell you how many times something got brought up in the conversation that really i never would have thought of a question i never would have asked that has been fascinating so my own experiment has shown that it just is such a different experience and like you said it's needed right now and and it'll continue to serve 
communication and connection and make it a smaller world as we move forward. All those things are positive and nothing replaces in person. And I love how you use the term insignificant connections. I said it earlier and we were recording, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll throw it in. Uh, but, um, and I think I've told this story. Uh, I don't know if I have yet. I think I've told it in one of our guests and maybe it'll get repeated, but my wife and I met through what you would call an insignificant connection. We were at our college orientation. She was in front of me in line at a, a bank table to sign up for a bank account. And uh, it was they, the, the, the teller was trying to get students to sign up for a credit card as well. And if you signed up for a credit card, you got a free USB drive. And uh, I was getting impatient and I was an arrogant little 18 year old, I think at the time. And, uh, and, I, uh, and the woman was really trying to sell my wife, like just a girl, I didn't know who she was at the time, and her mom on this, on this credit card and USB drive. And I leaned in and said, hey, can I just get a bank account? And the woman said, well, we've got this deal with this credit card and this US, and I go, I don't want a USB drive. I got one of those, I'd like a bank account. And, and it made her laugh and her mom laugh, and that was the end of it. Like they moved on, I got my bank account, and like three months later, we saw each other again, and and she looked familiar. And my grand opening statement was, uh, "Girl from the bank," and she looked at me and remembered my name. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, she's still the smarter one, and uh, and but that was literally how we met and it was that insignificant connection that allowed us to connect again and it's funny i never really thought about it in the way that you're describing it until you talked about these insignificant connections and not that you know you're gonna uh, meet your wife or you said that in your talk it doesn't mean you always meet your wife or your husband or your next business partner it can happen and i think that just serves to show how impactful these things can be and I don't know. Maybe maybe you'll do the the scientific work while we're in this quarantine. I'd love to know, or maybe it's already out there. The research of when you do social distance, how many less insignificant connections are you having? Because that'd be pretty fascinating to to yeah. see over the next few months. Well, there's a there's a PhD student who could do that for us. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> between our two countries we got to find one that'd be interested in that it would be surely yeah so now get so we've we uh obviously you and i both value in person and you set up this uh call that i was on i believe it was last week in regards to seeking a solution for digitally to help people connect during this time of social distancing talk about that project what are you what are you seeking to do and do you have any solutions yet do you have any ideas that you're moving on yeah so i mean i guess a couple of weeks ago i was thinking this is crucial that we really do something about this social isolation that probably all of us are experiencing to some degree i think that loneliness is already a problem and it's already an epidemic uh the red cross call it an epidemic but now during this covid time i think that everyone's going to experience some form of loneliness so i really wanted to kind of challenge that and there are some members of our community for the elderly or other at-risk communities that are even more at risk of, of this so yeah like like I organized I put out um, a post on LinkedIn asking for some volunteers to help with a project I have no tech background so obviously with this being some kind of digital platform I need some tech expertise and really it was overwhelming like I had about you know 70 replies and still going up 
offered of skilled help for this. I think people are really interested in doing something and they're really passionate at the moment and wondering what they can do to help. So that was great. I think that we're really looking at ways to, first of all, connect people in a way that's fun and doesn't talk about COVID-19. So mm. whether that's people will sign up as a user to our um, platform or whatever it's going to be called and we match them with other people based on their interests. I think that's probably the way this is going to go. Um, and maybe they're in group calls, maybe they're individual calls. That's something we really want to test. But I think our real, I would say long-term, but in the sh- it will happen quite quickly, I think, is that we'd really like to work with other organisations that are working with, uh, say, the elderly or with other at-risk groups and really connect kind of our volunteers to them for calls. And obviously there'll be a screening process and there'll be some vetting around who those people are that are doing those calls. And we work with the organisation on that. But... I really think that something needs to be done and yeah, I think that where this project goes and how big it gets and all of those things and what happens post COVID-19, I think I'm not really interested in that at the moment. It's more about really trying to have an impact and really help those people and do something. And yeah, I mean, we'll never be face to face connection, of course, but right now it's really important that, that, for me personally, to take some action and to really do something about this social isolation that, that people are experiencing. Because that is my biggest passion, is to tackle social isolation. And whether that's face-to-face or digitally, I think that right now, uh, digitally is the only way. That's the way that we've been, we've been told. So um, for health reasons, which is completely fair also. And um, yeah, it's very important. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at with that at the moment. So things will start moving quite, quite quickly over the next week or so. And um, yeah, hopefully we can really start to impact some people and, and it's useful to people also. Yeah. And do you have any uh, ideas that have been brought up now? I mean, right now, quite frankly, you know, obviously people are using Zoom and, and video chatting and all this kind of stuff. And I've seen people doing game nights via, via yeah. FaceTime and video chat and that sort of thing. Uh, we've done that with our friends and, and it's cool, I think you know, going back to the insignificant conversations and moments and connections, even that, you know, when you're sitting around a table playing a board game, a lot of the fun is turning to the person next to you and talking to them while something's going on or telling a joke. And none of that really happens via this, but it's something, right? It's somewhere to connect. Um, Are there any other cool ideas that have come up in the brainstorming sessions that you've done that are maybe a little more creative than than you've thought of or I've thought of or or anything like that? Yeah, I think that there was a couple of really good suggestions around connecting people on like doing some art together or music together or learning a language together. I think skill sharing is really interesting in this, this time as well. Um, people who I've seen quite a few posts on LinkedIn, people offering to their skills for free to others. And, you know, I think that that's really, really great. And I think that that would be an interesting way to connect people. Um, for example, someone trying to learn Spanish, being connected to a Spanish, you know, native speaker who could help them with that. Um, and that would obviously take quite a bit of setting up, but that's, I think, I think what you said is true. I think that at the moment, this is all we've got, right? So we need to make the most of it. And what, what can we do? Like the, the board game thing. And actually with a group of friends that I did my undergrad with, we've been playing cards once a week. And, you know, just a little card game that we used to play at University 500. We used to play when we were in our undergrad. And now we're back to playing again every week. And we haven't played for like 10 years. And that's really nice. And so we kind of have those kind of insignificant, you know, connections also but that's because we already know each other right so we already know we already have those jokes from 10 years ago they're still the same jokes and all that right so 
Um, I think if we're meeting new people, it's much harder in this environment. So yeah, we're really trying to test some of those, um, some of those things first. And the other thing about this, Bobby, is there's a lot of assumptions being made. Like there's not that much that I can see. There's been a bit of research, but this is the first time that we've really been forced to do this, right? So as a, as a human race, we've been forced into these digital connections and there is no chance of face-to-face connection. So I guess that it would be really good to test some of these assumptions that I'm making around people preferring group calls rather than one-to-one or vice versa and what activities people want to do because, yeah, there isn't a lot out there at the moment and it's good to really try and test those, those assumptions and see what people want and what do people feel connected from digital connection? I don't know the answer to that. So um, maybe they don't. Maybe, maybe that social isolation um, can't be cured by digital connection. I'm not sure. I'm hoping that it can and I believe that it can to some degree, but it wouldn't have the same impact as face-to-face connection. So mm-hmm. we're just trying to test those assumptions. Also. Yeah. So when you say assumptions, you say, so assumptions in terms of what people prefer, what people don't yeah. prefer, and yeah. and even maybe the assumption like you and I might have that that you know. But I guess the two two assumptions. One assumption is that um, there's people out there that are assuming this would be better to communicate this way to work remotely. And then there's the assumption from folks like us, you and I, Chris, who say, uh, no, it wouldn't. And, and nothing replaces yeah. face. And, exactly. And now for the first time, probably ever, I guess, because the last time there was a global pandemic, uh, as far as I understand, none of, none of, it was what, 1918 was what I keep hearing thrown out there. I don't know what you get. And, and, so, and so there wasn't any of this technology. And so this is the first time we're experiencing it with this technology and, and seeing, seeing what it creates and what it does. Yeah. And I think it, there'll be, there'll be fallout both ways. I think um, there's been a bit of, you know, criticism of zoom with some privacy stuff as well. And kind of, I guess that these things get exposed a lot more when they have to be used. And you raised a good point earlier about, you know, the online movement talking about that this could set the online movement back or it could really, you know, send it progressing forward. And I, depending on how people's views are formed after this happens, and I think that some of the technology isn't perfect for this. Like, we're seeing that as well. So maybe there's an opportunity to, for people to design technology that, that is better for this. Um, or maybe people will say, we don't need that technology, maybe it's just face-to-face. So it'll be interesting where the kind of the, yeah, where, um, where it falls afterwards and on which side of that spectrum of assumptions that, that you, you just mentioned there. Yeah. Where, so Chris, where do you see the hundred coffee movement in the next 10, 20, 30 years, you name it, go long-term kind of big, uh, audacious goal. What is your, what is your, what is your dream with the hundred coffee movement? Yeah. Our dream is really to have a global impact with, with our work and, Really, I think for us, the scalability of our work will come from licensing facilitators in a methodology and having a methodology that we, we have ownership of and that we train others in and then they can deliver that. And to do that at a global scale would be huge for us. And really, it's about challenging the way we view human connection and helping people to have better connections with each other. And I think that that is quite a high-level goal, but it's something that's con- constantly under attack um, from, you know, advancements in technology, encouragement to work from home, all of these different things are constantly challenging how we connect with each other. And I think that if we can 
keep human connection throughout all those times and we can keep people realizing that, yeah, okay, human connection is actually really important and we never lose that, then I think that that will be a great success for us because there are a lot of things happening at the moment in AI, for example, around replacing emotions and, you know, emotive AI. And I'm sure that there's really good uses of that. But again, often these things start as a really good idea where there's a good application and they turn into, well, hang on, we didn't think about all of these other applications. Not so good. And they've actually eroded human connection even further. So I think that that's what I'd really like to see is that we become kind of the, yeah, kind of the, I guess the activists or that's probably the wrong word, but kind of the, if you want to use the word activists around human connect, face-to-face human connection and the importance of that. And yeah, I think that that would be a really great goal for us to, to achieve that. What do you, what do you, what, if you're talking to somebody about this, like you said, you know, the, the changing the way we think about human connection or maybe value it, or you want to be the activist for human connection. What is your pitch when you encounter someone who maybe isn't on board? Do you have a elevator pitch? Do you have statistics that you go to? I know you've talked about loneliness, isolation. Do you have some things that you use to get people to lean in? I think that one of the best ways I've found to explain to people about this is really that we, we seem to really value convenience over human connection as a society. And what I mean by that is, is that take out the current period, but we can, we can use the self-service at the supermarket. We don't need to talk to a human being. We don't need to go through the checkout. We can go to the bank and we don't need to talk to a person. We can order our food online. We don't even need to go shopping. So if we need to go to the supermarket, we can skip the coffee line. You and I can order a coffee and t- we can say, well, we're there in 20 minutes to pick it up. We walk in with our headphones. We take the coffee. We haven't talked to one person, right? We, on that particular day, we could be working from home and we could then use Uber Eats to order our dinner. Like, we haven't spoken to a person the whole day, like, but we've managed to function through our whole day. So I think when you break it down for people, and that's the way I kind of explain it to people, is that really that needs to be challenged because when you think about that, none of those things individually are wrong. Like anyone that does those things, it's fine. And I do some of them as well. That's absolutely fine. But I think when you add them all up and it's consistent, I think that that's when we have a big problem. Like there's been some talk over here about one of our big supermarket chains removing um, people serving altogether to be completely, um, you know, human free at the supermarket. And that's kind of a problem because I think at the moment, at least we have a choice. If you're in a rush, you can go through the self-service. You don't need to talk to a person. That's fine. But you can talk to a person if you want to. Right. And sure. It's just, people would just would say, it's just a supermarket, Chris, like, don't worry about it. Like it's just a small thing. Right. But actually it's more of a reflection on society. And when those small changes start to happen, that's when things get, you know, follow on and people say, well, it's like the supermarket. They don't need people there. So why do we need people somewhere else? And so that's the, I think the way that I describe it to people that that needs to be challenged. And because to me, that's not acceptable. Like I think that we really eroding those connections so much is, is not, it's not okay. And that will cause us some significant problems in society when we already have loneliness as an epidemic and we already have these social isolation issues and we already have issues with, um, you know, young people maybe not been able to connect. Often we talk about skills for the future of work. One of the top skills is like emotional intelligence and the ability to connect with others. And that's no coincidence. That's, that's come from some of these things also. So I think that it's kind of at both ends of the spectrum, this is a problem. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's perfectly said. And, um, and, and it, from a place of technology, it is going to happen. Right. Like I not to sound defeatist, but I think it is happening where 
the, I, I, I think I'm, I'm not a tech guy by any means. And I, from what I read, I would say within the next 10 years, things are going to look very different in terms yeah. of I mean, Amazon has already piloted and I don't know how successful they've been at it, but there's a store, I forget where, I want to say somewhere in, in California or maybe Washington, somewhere on the West Coast of the States, where um, you walk in and when you pick up your, your product, say your granola bar, your milk or whatever, you just put it in your cart or your bag and you walk out and somehow maybe your app or I don't know, if someone knows the technology is listening, they're probably yelling at their, their phone or wherever they're listening to this right now because I'm getting the tech part of it wrong. But the, the reality is you can just pick up your groceries and walk out and never talk to any, not, not even have to go through a self checkout line. And you know, you describe the coffee shops so of order on the phone, go pick it up. Uh, you know, hotels now, I think it's, um, I, I believe is a chain where if you're in the rewards program, you can get an app on your phone and, and just check in on your phone and then get to the hotel and wave it in front of the door and open the door like every, and that's now. So fast forward 10, 20, 30 years from now, the, as you call them, insignificant moments are going to be far less and less. And there are positives to that in regards to, like you said, like there's days where I don't want to wait in line at the hotel. Quite frankly, when I first heard about that technology, I, I, I like was on the edge of changing hotel chains. And that was like what tipped me over the scale to be like, if I ne like after a day of flying and riding in rental cars and waiting in the rental car lane and, and, just waiting, waiting, waiting. If I can skip the hotel line, I'll take it. And so I'm, as, as a guy who's on this crusade with you, uh, I'll choose the, the convenience oh. at times. And so for me, what that means is we can't fight the technology advancements. What we need to be is super intentional then about the moments of face-to-face -face connection, the moment of insignificant uh, uh, in interactions, right? We've got to be super intentional about those and we need to teach them because you're 100% right. If, if kids today are growing up where tech communication is so much on their phone and social media, then it's not their fault if they can't have a conversation face-to-face -face, or if they don't want to call someone on the phone because they haven't learned those skills organically the way we used to. And so we have to be intentional about teaching those skills. And that's where I think, absolutely, call yourself an activist because right now it's at the cusp of it. And, and you and I are talking about it before maybe more people are talking about it. So that 30 years from now, this level of intentionality with connection might be normal. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully, I mean, it's like you said, I think that the key really is around yeah, being intentional and then maybe for organizations to be intentional as well. Like if they're removing connection one way, can they bring it back in another way? Um, and how do they connect their teams? How do they connect their people? And, and do they really value human connection as an organization? And I think that would be also be really good to see as well. The organizations that are making our lives more convenient to also consider where can they increase human connection also? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I love it. So Chris, how do people, if they're interested in the 100 Coffee movement or learning more about you, how do they find it? How do they connect with you? Yeah, so LinkedIn is probably the best way. So just under Chris Hope, um, or you can search 100 Coffee Movement. Our website is www.100coffeemovement.com. Uh, and again, we have a LinkedIn uh, page there. So always happy to, to um, 
yeah, always open to a coffee, virtual coffee. Uh, depending on where listeners are from, always happy to, to chat further and yeah, we'd love to hear more about yeah, the listeners as well and their stories and yeah, always always open to hearing about other people's stories and yeah, would have be be great to connect with people. I'll vouch for that. You like I said, you're great at, at LinkedIn and uh, and you're great at connecting, even just, just hopping on to talk with folks. So I'll encourage listeners to to definitely connect with you and reach out. And my my final question I like to ask guests is do you have a what I call a fifty cups of coffee story? So it's a story where, you know, I'm sure you you've you have a hundred of them, uh, but but it's a story where um, because of an interaction with someone or call it a, an insignificant moment, but for me, it's really the intentional interaction. So you decided to grab coffee with somebody and, and it led to, to something. It doesn't have to be a job. It doesn't have to be a big moment or really even a cool story. It's just acknowledgement of because of this intentional interaction, here's what I learned or took from it. And you've certainly shared you know, coffee number four led to that question that changed your life. So that definitely counts. Do you have another one that, that uh, stands out to you that's worth sharing with folks here of, of what I call a 50 cup of coffee moment? For you, it's a 100 cup of coffee moment. Yeah, actually, one of my, one of my best friends now, she, um, her and I met through one of these insignificant connections. So we'd been to a, a kind of graduate careers fair and we're kind of it was it was okay it was a little bit long and, and kind of a boring career sphere to be honest with you and kind of walked outside of my head was sort of all over the place like and there was kind of this girl then i thought oh, i'll just you know ask her like what she thought of the what did you think of the day like did she support my view that this was like you know quite boring and i said oh hello how are you and and she turned around and we started talking and i said oh and we, we started to talk about what we were both doing and she was studying human rights law and i thought oh that's really interesting because i'm really passionate about like social justice and some of those things also I said oh what are you doing now like you know could we get a coffee and so we ended up having a coffee and we talked for about three hours and this girl is now one of my best friends and so again that was that insignificant connection it was kind of like I'm walking out the careers fair. I see this person you know 99 times out of 100 or whatever the odds are I've just made that up that person would say no it was okay have a good day and just walk off right and that's also fine but it was this one in a hundred that I've now gained a really great person in my life and yeah, like now become one of my really, uh, really close friends all from that moment of me just asking her, you know, how, what did you think of the day? And yeah, there's many stories that I have. A lot of them are from traveling also. I think when you travel and you meet people and you're kind of like all in the same boat, I was in Vietnam last year. I met a really nice American couple from New York and it was a similar situation. We were on the bus to Halong Bay from Hanoi. I kind of was looking around, where am I going to sit? They were there at the back of the bus. They said, oh, here he is, come and sit with us. And then next minute, like, we hung out for the whole day. We went out for drinks in the evening. And, you know, if I visit New York, then for sure I'll visit those guys, right? And they're always welcome to stay with me. And that, again, insignificant connection. We're on a bus. Someone says, come and sit with us. And that could have been the end of the conversation. I couldn't put my headphones in no problems and no one would have no one would have thought anything about it but instead it was kind of like oh so what do you guys do and then we, we ended up in this big conversation and there was really two really interesting people and great people and then that really added to my trip so when I talk about my time at Halong Bay I think about you know the beautiful limestones and all of all of those things but I also think about those two as well Brendan and Jasmine so I think that's where Travel, often when we think about our travel stories, that's where we have so many of these insignificant connections that actually are not so insignificant. Yeah. Sorry, I gave you two stories there. 
Don't apologize for that. <laughs> I, uh, one of my guests, Shane Yeager, um, I asked him this final question. Of yeah, yeah. And we talked for another 45 minutes. And <laughs> it ended up being a really cool episode of really just some of his cool stories. And no, I love it. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, he shared a lot of stories of traveling and those kinds of moments where you just you sit next to somebody new or, or walking out of the career fair and just asking somebody and to, about how it was. And what I'm consistently finding in this podcast of the, the commonality of what makes it a connection. Again, it's going to, this isn't some big, awesome takeaway aha moment. It's a simple reality that it's the getting coffee afterward. It's the, yeah. it's the grabbing any kind of drink afterward, a meal, yeah. having a coffee phone just yeah yeah where where you you you've now you've continued the conversation with that person and it's not just leaving it at at a hey how was this for you and again like you said maybe nine times out of ten that doesn't happen and that's okay um but just being open and willing to to do that is 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 really cool and it's amazing the connections you can have when you do that yeah totally totally agree i mean when you met your wife so doing that so i know i know i i think i told i think i told that story on an interview with a guy named brad nine that i haven't published yet i think i don't know maybe not maybe that's the first time <laughs> i never put the dots together though to, to you've given it a new term uh <laughs> although i don't know if my wife's gonna love that i say we met through an insignificant connection maybe not maybe not <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can try that one but yeah <laughs> awesome well uh uh i'll i'll end the recording but don't leave i want to say say goodbye kind of off mic and uh but uh Chris, thank you for, for coming thank on. Thank you so much. Show. Thank you for having me. I really uh, appreciate and it. I encourage people to go, go watch your TEDx talk. And uh, it's an awesome one. And I just, uh, I always say, uh, you know, you, you took the, the 50 cups of coffee, you doubled it, you made it that much better. And, uh, and I, I love the work you're doing with social, well, I guess loneliness, um, which right now is social distancing. So I'm excited to be a small part of whatever you guys figure out. Uh, because it's like you said, it's needed. If anyone's going to do it, it's you right now. So thanks for doing it. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. You played um, softball and basketball in college at, um, was it Guilford? Yeah. Yes, you played at Guilford, and then it looks like immediately after you graduate, you start coaching. You're an assistant coach for basketball, right? Yeah, I mean, I went to Australia uh, that summer to play basketball, and it was kind of a decision whether I wanted to try to, you know, at the point where I still love playing basketball, but, you know, like the practices and all the workouts, I was kind of over it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I've been doing it for so long. And Were so you then I decided professional to in Australia? Yeah, I went on a USA team. It was like a, this tournament. But um, when I was there, I actually received a couple offers to just kind of stay in place. But you just didn't want to watch Yeah, I mean, I kind of wanted to play, but like I said, you know, like, I was kind of tired of practice and, you know, everything that came along with it. So, you know, when that happens, it's probably time to, to stop doing it, you know, at that level. Yeah, I agree with you there. If you don't like the practice anymore, it's not going to get, it's not going to get right. any better. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> so then how'd you get into coaching? It was just a natural next progression. Yeah. And, and, and uh, someone who I had known since I was a, a, a child was a coach and gave me an opportunity and actually his assistant coach was someone I played for when I was, so I knew both of them really well. 
they come join their staff. And, and you were an assistant coach for about 10 years, right? Yeah, I was. And, you know, you know, we switched head coaches. Actually, the assistant became the head coach um, about four years in, and I stuck on with them and moved to the top assistant position. We had times and a lot of wins, and, you know, I was comfortable there. That's why, I, you know, decided to stay at that position and not try to move on. Talk about that. When I, I've talked to a number of coaches, and, you know, there really is a difference between, you know, an assistant coach and a head coach. And what I mean by that is it's not always – the hierarchy, right? It's not, not every assistant coach's goal is to go be a head coach. It's a very different skill set. It's a different position. Um, talk about that a little bit. Since you were an assistant coach for so long, what was your role? What, what do you see the role as an assistant coach? Yeah, I really enjoyed, you know, my position. When I first started as an assistant, I was working with guards. And then later on, I moved to working with the post. And um, I think sometimes with the players just because sometimes you're around them more in workouts and things like that and you know I learned once I became a head coach and you know a lot of times as a head coach basketball is sometimes almost secondary because you have the other things that you have to handle and take care of whether it's an assistant you know basketball is your job you know you're around basketball all day and um so I really enjoyed that part of it and it also allowed me to yeah, so you yeah. cut out a little bit there at the end, but you said it allowed you to play football, right? Because that, so that was when I was looking at your bio. Um, depending on where you find it, whether it's on the Panthers old site or Redskins now, they don't always put the years, or if they do put the years, I'm not gonna lie, it got confusing because I was like, man, she's coaching full time. Uh, it looks like you're coaching for like at, at one point Dartmouth football, and then and then a. a, a a women's professional team and then the Panthers and, and playing. And it looks like it's all happening at the same time. Um, how, so how did football come about? So you, after 10 years of coaching assistant coach, uh, you end up being a head, head coach at, is it Johnson Wales, Charlotte for two seasons. And it looks like from what I could see, that's kind of, you, you'd been playing football prior to that. So you're playing, I guess, take us through that journey. You're playing football while also being an assistant coach, and then you make your way to coaching with the Hot Shots and with Dartmouth. Take us, take us through that. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, while I was an assistant, I began playing football. So I started playing football immediately after um, I got back from Australia. That was kind of my first year playing. So, and I played throughout my time um, when I was an assistant coach, along with having, you know, other jobs as well, um, mm -hmm. to be able to support myself. And then um, once I became a head coach, I, you know, continued to play. And um, you know, I played last year as well. So obviously, well, who the, you, what's the league? Tell us about the league you play for. Yeah, um, I've played in the IWFL with the Carolina Phoenix, and then, uh, then I moved on to the WFA, um, which is another league. And I, I played with the uh, New York Sharks the last season. I played with these organizations. Okay, so you're you're coaching, uh, you're playing, and and you also had other other jobs at the time as well what were some of those you know if someone's I, I think it I think it is cool to hear because you know you meet a lot of people that might look at especially where you are now and say okay that's the goal right I want to get there and if you tell them well uh you know when I first started out I was I had a day job at Staples like wherever I don't know uh, that's usually not what they expect to hear so so what are some of the other jobs you had while you were coaching yeah I, I did a lot I mean I um I worked at a call center um, I sold insurance. I sold life insurance and annuities. I um, I was a police officer for four years. Was thing. 
um, along with that. And, um, you know, those are the, kind of the three main things I did and then just some random things <laughs> along yeah. the way. So how did you, how did you decide, you know, you're coaching full head coach for basketball and playing football. How did you make the decision? Was it, did you make the decision? Was, was, I guess here's the question. Was Dartmouth your first intern coaching position or was it the Panthers? No, I was with the Panthers. Um, once I made the decision to become a head coach, you know, I, I um, received the position in, in Charlotte and I moved there. And that's when I connected uh, with Coach Barron. I was with the Panthers uh, my first time there before I went to Arizona. So did you so reach out to them and ask for a position? How did that come about? Yeah, it, it was kind of random. Um, <laughs> I was actually uh, connected with – uh, Sam Rappaport uh, with the NFL. She's kind of charged with diversity. She's done an amazing job. And um, through that, I, I was to attend the Women's Coaches Forum, which was in the NFL, and actually met Coach Rivera there. Um, so I let him know that, you know, my office is literally next door. <laughs> and, you know, I would love to come out and, and check some things out. And that's kind of how it all started. How did you get invited to that, that summit? Just because you were a player? No, it, they, they kind of... Um, look for for females who they feel could be qualified to to play i mean to coach in football or whatever you know operations and scouting different things and you know they select the i think it was 40 women a year and we went to orlando yeah that's really cool, that's really cool. and then so you so so when you were the panthers it was a coaching intern correct is that what the position mm -hmm. was? what does that mean what is it and it sounds like is that the same thing you're doing with the redskins right now uh, it's, it's a little uh, different. The first time I was with Carolina, I was with the receivers. So, um, I did, you know, I was working with that group and then went to Arizona and then I came back to the manager and I was working with the running backs. So what, so um, what, um, I guess, you know, are you a, what, what does an intern do? Are you, are you coach? Are you, uh, shadowing, um, like how much responsibility do they give you? Is that coaching? Specifically yeah. Yeah. I have, yeah. I have quite a bit. I mean, I, I technically work with the running back position. So me and uh, coach Jordan, uh, the running backs coach work pretty closely together and especially now I'm just trying to get things together for you know installs and things and also help out with offensive control um, specifically with the run games just because I work with the run packs. So how'd you end up at the Redskins then? How'd you make that that from the Pan is it from the Panthers to the Redskins? How'd you how'd you end up? Uh, yeah I was at Dartmouth uh, last season so that was my last job and and then once I you know I, I came back to North Carolina in December from Dartmouth and um, just kind of figure out what's next and um, obviously, I had a relationship with Coach Rivera from Carolina, uh, working there twice, and he ultimately reached out to me and, and said he may have a position um, for me. So I went up and met with him, and um, it kind of went from there. And, you know, I, I think what's cool is you've had all these, you know, positions coaching in different leagues, in college and pro, and you're an assistant coach for 10 years. Um, what would you say is the biggest thing you've taken from all of this, from a coaching leadership perspective, um, from being around some of these coaches at the highest level, uh, is like, you know, what have you, what have you personally learned over the last, I'd say three years with football, but you know, you could say 13 if you count, you count your years coaching basketball too. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of two main things I think that, that I've learned and carried over from all of my experiences, you know, obviously have a high standard for yourself and you know that's one thing I, I definitely learned and my personal standard went even higher I think when I started working in the NFL it's just 
you know, the, the margin of error is so small in the NFL. And um, I think that standard has to be super high for the teams to be successful. And that was the first thing I noticed when I started working with the Panthers, just how, you know, if you're supposed to be at two yards, don't be at two and a half or, or three, be at two yards. And it's just a kind of a standard that you have. And, and then, you know, chase happiness for yourself, you know, and um, not necessarily chasing money, but, but what makes you happy? What are your goals? And, and what do you want to do to get there? And obviously start getting plans in place to, to get you there. How did you get the, the chase happiness is an interesting takeaway. How did that come about as a, as a how'd you learn that? Yeah, just because, you know, obviously been an assistant for 10 years and I was I was with a successful program. So there were always people trying to kind of poach me away, you know, to, to a bigger school or another opportunity. But I was happy where I was. And obviously I, I could have got paid more in these places and I wouldn't have to have another job or, or whatnot. But, you know, you can't you just can't replace that happiness. And I was happy where I was. We were super successful. You know, I had a lot of responsibilities there that a lot of assistants maybe not um, didn't have. So. Um, I think that was the main thing for me as far as happiness. And ultimately, you know, I made that decision. I was ready to move on. But, you know, there were several instances where I could have went on to bigger and better things. But I, I chose not to just because of, you know, I was really happy in my situation. Mm -hmm. Do you think the, the players that you get to coach, specifically in the NFL, do they overall understand that, the ones that last a long time? You know, I met, I, so my first interview for this podcast was with Harry Swain, who – was uh, I think you know 15 18 year NFL career and then uh, player engagement director for the Ravens and so he talked a lot about um, even not in the interview but just in general he and I have talked a lot about that idea of players who are chasing success or players who are chasing the money or or even a Super Bowl um, can can burn out really quickly because yes that's the goal that's a mission but if that's what you're chasing, then it's just, there's so many factors outside of your control that play into that. And so getting a player to understand not only, you know, chasing happiness in the league, but that there's life outside the league. And so is there a way, I guess, is that important to you as a coach to get that through to your players? And is there a way to do that when you get these young players who are just so focused on their career in the league? Yeah, I think it's very important, um, you know, to kind of relay that message to younger players. And obviously, you know, when someone first gets into the league, they're they're wide open, you know, and they, they want to be great at, at football. And sometimes it takes a while to really learn to be great at life as well. But that's one thing I always preached when I was a coach at basketball. It's just, you know, obviously we want to win championships. We want to be champions. But, you know, I think you have to kind of be a champion everywhere, you know, to be really good. So obviously in college, it was, you know, champion in the classroom, outside, you know, you can't eat cheeseburgers and pizza every day. And, you know, it's just different things that you need to do to, to really be that champion. And once you start doing that, I feel like success comes, you know, in the athletic realm. Mm -hmm. and, and how does that, so, you know, right now you're seeing a lot of, specifically in this current moment, a lot of athletes are home, college athletes, high school athletes, obviously pro as well. But, um, you know, those college and high school athletes are home and their coaches are seeking ways to motivate them to continue to put in the work because when your season or off season starts back up, whenever that is, uh, everyone will have been on the same playing field. Everybody's home right now. You can't come back and not in shape, not ready to go and say, well, I was stuck at home. Everybody's stuck at home. So what are you seeing? What is your kind of engagement with your players right now? I know it's your off season, but it's still – 
you know, if, if we're operating from a place of, and I, I haven't seen anything saying the NFL season is being postponed. So if we're operating from a place of the season is going to start on time, how are you as coaches staying engaged with your players to be sure that they're, they're doing what they need to do? And what are you seeing from the players? Do they need that encouragement or are they professionals who, who are getting the job done? Um, I feel like, you know, now with limited, um, you know, time to, to actually have connections with those guys just because it is the off season. We can't even chat football with them right now uh, for a, a week. So, um, you know, I've kind of been uh, looking on social media to see if they're posting workouts just to see what they're doing. But, you know, I think, you know, when you get to that professional level, you know, you have to be a pro and you, you know, you know, the, the season is, is super tough on your body. So you have to be prepared. And, you know, at the NFL level, you know, if you're not prepared or you're not doing what you need to do, they bring someone else in who will, you know, mm -hmm. it's that throat. So I think knowing that the guys, you know, they, they understand uh, what's at stake and they really haven't had a problem as far as, you know, staying in shape and, and staying engaged. When you guys do, so we got, what, two, three weeks, you're able to, to kick things off. Um, what is the plan right now? What are you, you going to do from, from afar? Yeah, we're kind of figuring it all out now. Um, obviously, it's probably going to be some type of Zoom or, or virtual uh, meetings with them. So obviously way different than normal just because, you know, in a few weeks you would normally be preparing for your, you know, your off-season workouts and your OTAs and, and minicamp, which we, we may not have. Who knows? So um, just kind of figuring it out how we want to do it virtually to be um, as efficient as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'll be interesting to continue to see, you know, what, what everyone's solution to this is and, and how we, how we make it through. Um, what would you, speaking, I guess, staying on this track of the NFL, um, you know, what would you, for someone who, you know, a lot of the uh, folks that listen to this are college coaches, high school coaches, and even non-coaches, um, is there a, when you get to the NFL, you know, now you've had at least, you know, a season with the Panthers, right? And now you're with the Redskins. Um, what's the biggest difference you see coaching professional versus, or even you could talk the professional leagues, you know, with the hot shots and that kind of thing. What is the, the biggest difference coaching professional from college? Uh, I feel, you know, professional athletes, they don't need as much motivation sometimes just because they're pros, you know, they're the best of the best at what they do. So um, they, they know that it's hard to get where they are. They know there's a ton of people that would love to be where they are and, and take their spot. So you know, that's a motivation I feel a lot of people use to, to put that work in and to, to really keep going. You know, never get comfortable um, just because you can be replaced so easily. And what is your, I guess, you know, you're in a, a different league of coaching too. I mean, from, from where you were being an assistant coach for 10 years to now saying, you know what, I'm going to compete in, the, in one of the most probably competitive coaching environments there is. Uh, what is your mentality as you take on coaching and especially right now too, like, do you have your own routine to stay sharp, to stay focused, stay out of the curve, um, to be the best coach you can be? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've kind of developed the same mentality as a player, you know, um, put that work in just because, I mean, obviously there are a lot of people would love to be in my position and, you know, every day I'm working to, to learn and to develop and also, you know, have my input on things um just so so we're ready and I can be the best coach I can be and also help our running back room be the best you know position they can be as well so you know it's all about not being comfortable you know always working always grinding and you know I have developed a routine obviously we're still working so you know it's it's kind of a normal work day uh for me as far as getting things ready for things to go virtual so um you know we're still putting a lot of work in
And then one of the, so I'm, I'm on a Zoom with other coaches and the, the point of the, the conversation is right now we're defining um, culture, right? We're sitting back and saying in this moment, let's pause, let's reflect and say, what is it, what type of culture are we creating? Sure, you know, right now we're in a, in a moment of, of, so I guess this is where it came about. When, when you have this moment where you're no longer with your players every day, the hope is that the culture you've created is creating an environment where those players are continuing to live it even when they're not on the field with you every day. So, you know, I guess, what it, how do you look at either from your old coaching days or even now, it doesn't really matter. How do you define culture and what has been your, I guess, best practices around creating effective cultures in your years of coaching? Yeah, um, I think I'll go back to basketball just because, you know, we're a new coaching staff here. You know, I haven't even met most of the players. So it's the talk culture. Yeah. You know, we haven't done it yet. But, you know, once I became a head coach, you know, that was one of the things um, I feel I was hired on was to change the culture because I took over a relatively new program that hadn't been very successful. And, you know, coming from a, a program um, where I was an assistant, we were very successful. How can I bring our culture over? And, you know, I really, when I got there, I defined culture as, you know, what we'll accept and what we won't accept. And, you know, everyone's saying they want to be great. They want to be good. They want to win games. They want to win championships. And that's something that you have to remember and carry over into everything, you know, and I'll never forget. Um, I think it's my second season. You know, we'd had some success the first year. I won 15 games, which was good. And, um, you know, I, I thought we had a special group. And early on in preseason workouts, you know, we had, we had talked culture, we had met about culture. And I, we had a three-time All-American, obviously, entering her senior year. Awesome player, um, super athletic and great kid. But in these workouts, she's just – you could tell she wasn't giving it her all, you know. And, and I, I felt that was a great time to really drive our culture home. And I'll never forget, we're in our gym – and, you know, I see her and I lose it. Like, I go berserk. And it's partly planned, but it's partly because I'm frustrated with her, too. And I, I absolutely rip her and I kick her out. I kick her out of the workouts. And I think for our freshmen and everyone else to see that no one is exempt from the standard that we're setting really kind of drove home what we wanted to do in our culture with that. And, you know, I think from that point on, we had a, a championship culture and that's the year we actually went on to win a national championship. So um, I think it was, it was super special. And that, that's a moment kind of defining moment. I always think about um, during that season and, you know, me and her laugh about it now, but you know, <laughs> I was so mad, but I thought it was a great time to kind of, you know, make an example out of her as well, just to let everyone know that no one's above, you know, the standard of the culture, including myself. How so you 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 laughed that you were intentional. How intentional were you about the frustration that you brought to that moment? Yeah, well, it was very frustrating just because you, you know the type of athlete she she is and was. You knew that she wasn't going as hard as she could just because more than likely she was the best athlete in the gym. You know, and to see her kind of going through the motions, it, it was very frustrating. And I just didn't want others to be able to see that and feel that they could do the same thing. Cause that's what happens. Even though they're not three-time All-American, you know, the last player on the bench still sometimes think, oh, she's doing it, maybe I can do it too. You know, if they don't have that drive to be better. So, you know, I just, you know, I, I kind of put my foot down and made an example of it. And, you know, it kind of went from there. 
Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I, on this call that we had last week, one of the coaches defined culture as what you tolerate. And, and I didn't love the, the kind of negative tone, I guess, that it has. But as mm-hmm. I thought about it, I was like, yeah, it's absolutely true. We can use yeah. these words all we want. Of, like you said, it's what we accept. It's what we, it's the bar we set. It's, you know, Harry in his interview said, our culture is we set the bar up here and we don't lower it. For you to walk over it because because you're a great player we we empower you to reach that bar it doesn't matter who you are you reach the bar and and so this coach said it's what you tolerate and again for a second i was like oh it's kind of negative but in reality i was like nah, and it's true because if if you tolerate whatever you tell the lowest level denominator you tolerate is what the other players are going to model and do especially if it's one of your best players like you said they're not looking at it and seeing the difference oh well she can get away with that because she's a three-time all-american they're (laughs) saying they're saying if she can do it i can do it too i asked about how intentional your frustration was because i read the book sacred hoops years ago which is by phil jackson and he talks Mm -hmm. about how he's typically a pretty chill coach like he literally would just be kind of leaned back coaching most of the time and there was one time where he could tell his players were just not really into it so he intentionally walked in the locker room kicked a water bottle across the line and just was like really losing it and he said the players were shocked because he's never never really done that and and he just left the locker room and afterward the players came together and came up with their own plan and did their own kind of conversations at halftime and came back ready. And, and, you know, he tells the story in the book of, you know, he, he was trying to define frustration and anger because he's the, the Zen master and he really thinks about this stuff. And his point was he used it intentionally. It's not that you can never be angry as a coach. It's not that you always have to be angry. It's not that he, you should kick a, a water bottle across the floor. I'm not saying you should do that. But he was just saying how intentional he was about letting the players know that he is frustrated because, mm-hmm. you know, if they don't feel that, then, then they're not going to understand it. And sometimes you do have to be that intentional. Yeah, I think that's super important. And, you know, that's kind of the type of coach I was. You know, I was pretty chill. So, so when I wasn't, they knew that <laughs> it was a problem, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I also decided to do that just because I felt when I was calm, they were calm, especially in games. You know, obviously we have tough times and, you know, if they look over and see me panicking or going crazy, they're probably going to do the same thing. I'm a big believer in that. So, um, you know, I think my, my demeanor was really big as far as our success. And they kind of, um, kind of, you know, followed me and being relaxed and calm. So now you're, you're one of, what, four female coaches in the NFL. Um, you know, there's female coaches in the NBA. But the uniqueness of the NFL, I think, is, is that there is no structured – girls football growing up there is no you know like you said opportunity to play in a real in a way right now and on a, on a, a, in a big way so has that ever been coaching with the Panthers or Dartmouth or Redskins has that ever been a hurdle for you like you're in the door now you're a coach on the team is that ever a hurdle with the players or do they look at you as just another coach uh, I think they look at me as another coach and you know I've been playing football for what, 10, 12 years. So I think they know that. And that actually has helped just because they know that I've played. So even though I didn't play as a kid as much, they know that I've played. And, you know, I remember in Arizona one day in practice, I guess some of the goofballs had went and found like highlights and, you know, they give me a hard time. But I think they're, they're joking, but it really added a, a level of validity for me with them just to yeah. see that I, I, you know, I was playing and, you know, the things that I was able to do. So um, I think if anything, it's kind of helped me. 
That's awesome. And what, uh, so what would your message be then to other young women or little girls who uh, are looking at, you know, I think it's a cool message in, in one way because, you know, I don't want to say are looking and saying they want to coach because I think there's probably still a lot of girls like you when you were younger that didn't even know it was an option. And so how do you get that message to them that this is an option, that anything you want to do is an option and, and, uh, and to go for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my message is always, you know, go and, and do what you want to do, and, but know that it's not going to be easy, you know, especially if you're going down a, a road that's that's kind of, uh, you're making your own path. And uh, that was something that, you know, I, del I was delayed on just because there was no representation, but now I feel there's, there is representation and I'm hoping that helps, um, you know, women and, and girls go right into what they want to do. Don't, don't get your, your dreams deferred, you know, just because, you know, you didn't think you could do it. So now I feel it's a, it's a great opportunity and a great great day to be alive for, for women and girls to try to do what they want to do without thinking they can't do something because there's no one that looks like them doing it. Um, you know, it's okay to be the first sometimes and, um, you know, just really strive for greatness. You know, that, that's really my goal. Mm -hmm. And how well, so this, this summit within the NFL, how long has that been around? Uh, and, and how, like, what, what type of work is the NFL doing to create more of those opportunities because you do have to be intentional about diversity in all forms, gender, race, sexuality, anything. You have to be intentional because otherwise it, the, the diversity doesn't occur. So what type of work is the NFL doing to create more diversity specifically with women working? I think I read it's, you know, what 50% of fans of the NFL are female yet it makes up, I don't even know what less than a quarter of the employees within the league, whether it's coaching or front office, what type of stuff are they doing? Yeah, I think this past forum was form number five, if I'm not mistaken. And actually article just came out um, last week. I think that form is responsible for 89 women being hired in the NFL, you know, either as interns or full-time positions, um, obviously in operations, scouting, you know, all the different aspects of, of football. Um, so I think the, you know, that's why everyone's so thankful for Sam and the job that she's doing uh, with the NFL. And I think the NFL's on board, which is also awesome. And, you know, I think the teams are also on board just because getting to meet and, and chat with coaches at these events and at the combine, you know, people see value in being able to, to hire women in, in roles. And um, I think that's super important. And I think that's a direct reflection of the work that Sam's put in, kind of putting people in position to be seen um you know that are capable to do these jobs that's awesome and you know the whole point of of this podcast is 50 cups of coffee the idea is connection right it's it's 52 weeks in a year are you meeting with people or are you grabbing coffee with them are you going for a run are you working out with them are you chatting with them on the phone you've already shared part of your story is literally just you know connecting with, with coaches uh, within the Panthers organization. I'd love to create more time than usual uh, for, for some of these stories. I always ask what's one 50 cups of coffee story, but I'd love to hear some more because it sounds like uh, you have been a connector for, for your career and that's helped you get to where you are. So I'd love to just give some space to hear some stories. I'll start it off by just asking simply, um, do you have a, what I call 50 cups of coffee story? It's a story where just simply connecting with someone led to a cool opportunity for you. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy and it, I hope you can follow, follow the connections I, I make here. But um, when, once I started coaching basketball, um, I met a lady who became a mentor and you know I met her because she was hosting like pickup basketball for women to come play so 
you know, I was obviously going to play and, you know, she, I started picking her brain about some things and realized she's like brilliant and she's a great coach and business person and everything. So we started talking and connecting and fast forward like 10 years, eight years, you know, we're talking one day and you know, she was like, yeah, you know, probably should get your master's. And, you know, I was never really big on school. I like learning, but I didn't like the tests and papers and things like that. So I was like, oh, I don't know, I guess so. She's like, you ever want to be a head coach? You probably want to get that. So went online, looked, ended up enrolling in, you know, to get a master's at, at Liberty University in sport administration online. And uh, it went well, graduated. And then that, that summer, I got my head coaching job, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> obviously I got that job partly because I had my master's because colleges like for their head coaches to have master's degrees. So when I look back, you know, if I had never met her to get my master's, I may have never ended up in Charlotte beside the Panther facility, which have never led me to ultimately meet Coach Rivera and kind of put me where I am now. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, but you know, that, that set so many things into play now that, you know, my life could be totally different um, if I wouldn't have done that. Wow. I followed that. That is a great story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so that, that came, as soon as you finished your master's, the, the head coaching job was, you said, offered to you or presented to you? Yeah. I mean, actually, I, I guess I graduated in May and I, I took that head coaching job in August, September of that year. Yeah. So it, like the second job head coaching job I applied for wow yeah that's a good journey is this woman still a mentor to you today oh absolutely I mean she's a great friend mentor you know we, we talk all the time yeah. are you still playing football today yeah well uh I hadn't decided on this season and the women's season actually play in the spring so they're all like postponed right now so I don't even know if they're gonna play at all so um okay my decision easier <laughs> but uh I, I wasn't sure you know I, I kind of want to but I didn't know I didn't know uh you know my availability and everything so I was kind of holding off but now it looks like they're may not even be seasoned anyway thanks man it's awesome well cool well that's it um I'll uh I'll I'll edit it and and, and make it sound good uh on my end not your end make sure my questions I'm sound normal <laughs> because um, I can I can ask really long-winded questions um, um, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this I'm sure you got a lot going on to prepare for when you guys are able to be back with the players so thanks for taking the time to do this and, and good luck good luck this offseason with whatever you got going. it was nice connecting with you man you too you too all right, all right later Thank you for listening to the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe wherever you are listening. Please give us a rating and leave a review and connect with me on social at Bobby Audley. If you are interested in learning more about our peak performance coaching program or simply grabbing a virtual cup of coffee with me, go to calendly.com forward slash Bobby Audley 01. This podcast is a production of the Pinot Training Group and our theme music is by Matisse Soy. To learn more about the work we do with teams and organizations, please check us out at Pinot Training Group.com. Thank <laughs> you.